Hey, welcome to Invention. My name is Robert Lamb. And I'm Joe McCormick. And Robert, I got a question for you. Have you ever been to like a festival or big public event where the organizers did not get enough porta potties? Ooh, probably so. Probably so. Um, it's, I mean, it's it's a weird, it's a weird equation you have to work out, right? Because you mm-hmm. need to have the approximate number of porta potties for a given event. And at the same time, like I've, I've definitely, I've been to events where people care more for the porta potties. Like there's more of a communal effort to, like let's let's look after these porta potties. Let's even go in there and clean the porta potties, right. To ensure that things don't get too vile too fast. Like if there is a, if it's a multi day event, people might be more respectful of the fact that people will need to continue to use these yes. over a period of time than if it's just like a. It's, you know, this is going on for a few hours. Let's just go total war on these facilities. <laughs> uh, I've been to – I one time went to a beer tasting festival in North Carolina w- where they did not get nearly enough porta potties. And I remember feeling like this is the closest thing I've ever felt to like a, an, a Mad Max type scenario in real life. People were losing their minds. Like mm-hmm. when, when you don't have a place – you've been drinking beer and then you don't have a place where you can legally and uh, in, uh, in, in a polite way go to the bathroom, it, things start to get dire really fast. Mm, yeah, and I'm guessing there's probably a lot of indiscriminate uh, aiming from uh, male urinators at this uh, th- these particular events. Well, yeah, there was also a – you could tell just like this all over the place frantic search like ants foraging about looking for other places they could go apart from the far <laughs> too few porta potties that were swarmed by people waiting mm-hmm. but you start doing some very odd math if you're in a situation like that or even if you're not even if it's not that bad you're just waiting in line to use a porta potty at least i find i do and one of the questions that i think you inevitably start pondering is how much exactly do people poop in a lifetime? Like, how much do I poop in a year? How much do does uh, does my whole household poop in you know in twenty years? Yeah, though these are not necessarily factors that are going to help you out for a you know weekend uh, music festival. No, no, but I mean, you have to imagine that there's some kind of rough math along those lines going in. I guess it's less. For the festival, it's probably less thinking about the total mass of poop and more about like, I don't know, how many people and how often they'll need mm-hmm. to go because it's not like the things are going to be filled up and overflowing, at least hopefully not. Uh, but yeah, th- that is a thing that you can start wondering about and it's a weird question once you actually get the answer. I, I found an article that addresses this. It was a 2018 article on Live Science by Mindy Weisberger addressing exactly this question full on with an interview with a like health professional who who had the the dirt. So it's impossible to answer this question exactly, how much you poop in a lifetime, because, of course, everybody's different. There's different average fecal mass production. There's different lifespan and all that. But it's actually fairly easy to get some average figures. So the article cites Kim Barrett, a professor of medicine at UC San Diego. And Barrett says, on average, men and women have roughly one bowel movement per day, though if you have more than that or less than that, don't panic. There's a normal range that's more and less. It's okay. Uh, But the daily average amount of feces produced by mass by a person, an adult, is usually about 14 to 17 ounces or about 400 to 500 grams. And from there, uh, Weisberger does some simple math. 
Quote, starting with an average daily amount of about 14 ounces or 400 grams, the total poop production in a week's time would be about 6 pounds or 2.8 kilograms. In a year, a single person would yield about 320 pounds or 145 kilograms of poop, just a little more than an adult panda weighs. All right. So when, when one hears the sort of drill sergeant cliche of like, I've, I've crap bigger than you, uh, that's probably true if you're looking at a, like a year's worth of defecation. Well, that starts to call to mind this thing that it got me thinking about. It make, it got me thinking about how as people get older, often their bodies shrink, right? You know, after adulthood, your body can't actually physically shrink. You don't continue getting bigger and bigger as life goes on. And yet there's this invisible phantom of biomass following every person around throughout the years. And no matter what, it's always getting larger and larger the older you get. It is the phantom mountain of combined mass of all the feces you've ever produced. Like a, like a big poop golem following you around. You have yeah. an invisible phantom poop golem that follows you everywhere and only gets bigger with age. So, so uh, this means that like if you live to the age of 76, uh, Weisberger does the math, on average you'll produce like 24,320 pounds or 11,030 kilograms of poop in your lifetime. If you live to 81, it's more like it's close to 26,000 pounds or close to uh, 12,000 kilograms. Quote, so a lifetime of a woman's poop because the average female lifespan is about 81 years in the United States. Uh, the average uh, lifetime of a woman's poop weighs as much as three adult male hippos. But if you follow the same averages we mentioned a minute ago, think about those people who lived to like 120, you know, the super, mm -hmm. super centenarians. Uh, one of these people who lives to like 120 has created by the end of their life a, a phantom poop mountain or one of these poop golems of 38,400 pounds or about 17,420 kilograms. I was trying to find an object to compare this to. It's close to the weight of a number of lighter combat vehicles like the M24 Chafee Light Tank. <laughs> first used by the Americans in World War II. Just imagine this. If you live to 120 over the course of your life, you can, on average, poop a tank. <laughs> All right. Well, uh, let, let's think about these poop golems. Um, obviously, they cannot live with us. They right. must live elsewhere. And that's why – that's where we get to the subject of today's episode and the episode to follow this because this is going to be a two-parter. And we think you'll love this one, but episode number two is going to be a real doozy. Yes. <laughs> so, yeah, that, that's, that's the subject of our episode. It brings us to the technology of the toilet and ultimately the concept of the flush toilet. Right. Um, so I think in today's episode, we're going to be focusing primarily on sort of the history of toilet technology, what we what we were dealing with, like the problems faced by disposal of human waste and, and toilets before the flush toilet was invented. Right. And then in the next episode, we'll meet the power of the flush. Uh, but so w I think one of the things to think about is that the problem of what to do with human waste – only really becomes a huge issue once you have sedentary lifestyles and civilization. Like once you get a lot of people living in roughly the same place and not constantly moving, right? 
Absolutely. Uh, you know, I was looking back at one of my favorite books on hygiene, Clean, A History of Personal Hygiene and Purity by uh, Virginia Smith. And mm-hmm. she points out that making sure that your poop is somewhere other than your immediate living uh, environment has always been just a universal human behavior. This is part of, of our, our species. And certainly you see this in any number of species as well. Right. Um, I mean, you see uh, like dogs would rather go poop somewhere far away from where they live. You know, they don't want to poop in their den. Right. And they're, they're even, you know, we've talked about uh, coprophagia. There are even like some ideas in science about like when a dog – uh, ends up pooping in its house, this may come from like a, an instinct to uh, the fact that sometimes dogs will then eat it, which seems gross to us, is actually something to like prevent possible parasite eggs from hatching in it because it, there can be a health risk from poop staying around in your living areas. Yeah. And if you want to hear more about this, Stuff to Blow Your Mind has an entire episode about animals eating poop. That's right. We're not going to be focusing on eating poop today. No. Except in the sense that a toilet eats poop. If you will, yeah. It, you can you can look at it that way for sure. <laughs> uh, so, uh, you know, back when we were just nomadic creatures, we didn't have to worry about this so much. You you pooped where you had to poop. You did whatever you needed to do to, to hide the feces. But then you're going to be moving on. Yeah. You're not going to stay in that immediate area. And you're probably – there aren't that many of you anyway. Like a, a, any given group of, of human nomads – uh, it, it's not going to be the size of a, of a, of a village or the, certainly the size of a large metropolitan area. Now, that doesn't mean there are no dangers associated with defecation at this stage. Even though you're not going to have nearly as much of a problem with what to do with the excrement, you are still like when you, uh, when you go to go to the bathroom, you're putting yourself in a vulnerable state. Absolutely. I mean, poop itself – opens up vulnerabilities. Yeah. Uh, you know, you see this in any number of animals that have various methods for hiding their own poop. Sometimes it's essentially self-hiding, such as the way a, a goat's poop will roll away. Mm-hmm. Uh, goats, you know, often well, would favor uh, a hilly environments. So mm-hmm. the, the poop rolls away, hides itself. Uh, cats, on the other hand, of course, are, are known for their, uh, their their skill at burying their poop mm-hmm. uh, and thus hiding it from, from larger predators because that's the fear, right, is that your fecal matter is, uh, is a signal. Uh, it, it's, an, it's, an odor, it's an odor that is letting anyone with a nose to smell it know where you are and perhaps what degree of, of health you're in as well. Yeah, if you are a prey animal, it shows you where a predator can come get a meal. If you're a predator, it can scare off prey animals. Uh, I, there was a paper that looked into into some of this. It was a 2013 paper called The Control of Defecation in Humans, an Evolutionary Advantage, <laughs> the question mark part of it there, by Italian bowel experts uh, G. Bassati and V. Villanacci. And uh, they did a, uh, something interesting here. They ran a human fecal sample. Uh, they, well, they used both a modern and an ancient uh, example through complex gas uh, chromatographic mass uh, spectro- spectrometric analysis. And they discovered that, quote, human feces are rich in volatile compounds likely to be identified by potential predators. And uh, so they, they went on to argue that the high predation risk for ancient hominids by large carnivores suggests uh, uh, something rather amazing about our pooping powers. 
quote, we hypothesize that the voluntary control of defecation by our ancestors together with greater brain volume, erect stature, opposable thumbs and other changes may have contributed to the successful march of hominids along the road of evolution. In fact, by deciding when, how and where to defecate may have several advantages in the complex prey-predator relationship because spores are left in places undetectable by predators or there are no fecal tracts whose scent may be easily uh, individuated by prey. So they propose that uh, choosing carefully where to poop may be an important part of what kind of animal we are. Exactly. So, uh, but, but even from an early point, um, as uh, Virginia Smith points out, Neolithic peoples, they made use of midden piles. So you would have a, an area in which you're living mm-hmm. and if you need to, to poop, you are either pooping beyond the area in which you're living or you're taking your poop and dumping it out there. In, in the midden pile. And there are, you know, a few different systems that, uh, that, that one can use here. Uh, one, of course, is the dry sewer system. And, uh, and this, is, this will remind probably a lot of people of a cat box because a, uh, a cat's litter box is a dry sewer system. Mm-hmm. Uh, the, this would have been uh, an indoor bucket of sand, ash, or dirt that one would defecate into, and then you could take that dirt, sand, or ash uh, outside, take it to the midden pile, dump it out, and you're done. Or you could do it in the inverse. I mean, this is actually still a common method in dry uh, pit latrines around the world. Mm -hmm. Like, if you've got an outhouse and it's just a pit latrine, um, a a common thing to do to help prevent smells and and help uh, keep things from getting too nasty is after you do your business in the pit, you've got a bucket of, like, old coal ash or something like that or lime or something in the – uh, in the outhouse and you scatter that on top and that helps contain smells and so forth. Now, of course, the wet sewer system, we're going to get more into that in a bit, but that, of course, is ultimately what we have today in much of the world where you certainly a flush toilet is an example of this. Right. And that simply derives from sort of the the – the ingenious mechanical action of water flow, right? Mm-hmm. If you have to – if you want to say poop in a chamber pot or in a bucket or something like that, you've got to physically remove it yourself from where you are. If you are to poop into moving water, then the moving water can remove your waste for you and you don't have to do that. Right. Or I guess one could poop into a container of water that is not moving and then you would remove that yourself. That's also a possibility. I guess it is. Now, the other— There are all kinds of things you can poop into. (laughs) And I imagine people have tried all of them at one point or another. Now, beyond uh, this dry-wet distinction, there's another important one that uh, Smith points out. And she says that toilet culture divides uh, sharply into wiper and washer culture. Yeah. And this is, of course, is just how one cleans one's bum toilet after pa- defecation. Yeah, like toilet paper versus like a bidet or wet wipes or something like that. Yeah. Now, most ancient cultures, she points out, they, they were wipers. So they would have used certainly paper if it was available. Of course, for the longest paper it was um, – was a rarity. Mm -hmm. Uh, So you were going to probably depend on things like grass, leaves, sticks, corn cobs, mud balls, and of course, stones. I've commonly seen cited, I'm trying to imagine this, I just see it pop up in like articles about ancient toilets that people would use bits of broken pottery to clean themselves. I see that cited, but I'm just trying to picture it and it will not picture it, but you know, it, it, it seems, it seems 
little little risky. Well, it, it, it drives down just the ridiculousness, I think, of any wiping culture uh-huh. because I feel like ultimately washing culture has the stronger argument. <laughs> um, and washing culture is, of course, ins- instead of using even paper, what if you simply depended more or exclusively on running water or spraying water or water poured from an apparatus? The, 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 uh, the sort of lubricant power of water, it's taking the principle of the flush toilet to your own skin. Right. And, uh, you know, this is the standard in many parts of the world, um, you know, p- particularly, say, in Islamic and uh, Hindu cultures. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, you'll even find this uh, – if you've ever traveled abroad, you may have encountered this. But I have also – I know people who like purchased a house say, in the Atlanta area and they're like, I don't know why, but there's a vegetable sprayer uh, installed next to my toilet. Mm-hmm. Well, that – is uh, it's a bidet sprayer. That's uh, that's a, simply a, a means of of washing one's bum after one has defecated, and it's a rather elegant solution. I would, I, I, in my opinion, hard to argue there. I mean, yeah, water gets things cleaner than than without water. I mean, it's not a perfect analogy, but imagine if I gave you the option of: Would you rather uh, uh, be able to take showers or just wipe yourself down with some paper towels yeah. to, to clean your body? Absolutely, I think most of us would probably choose the running water if it is an all-in option. Uh, that being said, for many of these cultures, uh, running water was not an option. You know that, that and that's right. one of the main reasons that you're seeing the the wiping method uh, as the primary method in these in in among ancient peoples. Uh, now. Uh, for the most part, this this worked, right? They, we were able to sort of uh, uh, roll with very simple um, sewage systems, <laughs> just simply get up and move on because you're nomadic or if you're living in a small area, just keep it on the outside of your, your living environment. But the, the thing about humans is that we inevitably did a number of things. We overcame all of our predators. We we conquered the natural world and invented the agriculture. And then we started smart move. <laughs> and then we started building cities. We yes. started building just increasingly large, cramped, complex, um, just accretions of human population, which of course is one of the reasons we have uh, have so many uh, wonderful things in our culture, but also it created a lot of problems. Yeah, of course. The city comes with many wonders for good and ill. And it just ima- – I mean obviously how to deal with human waste is a major one of the ills, right? It is one of the biggest problems that you immediately face as soon as you decide to create crowded sedentary civilization, cramming a bunch of people close together and having them all live there and not leave. Right. And what to do with human waste has long been, I think, one of the single most important and consequential problems in the design of human civilizations. Uh, like, think about, okay, if we go with those numbers earlier, like the, you know, 14 ounces or whatever, uh, average uh, a day, a household of five people is producing on average like 30 pounds of feces a week. An apartment building of 50 people produces like 300 pounds a week. Obviously, people don't want that stuff hanging around. So where does it go? And how does it get there? If you uh, okay, so if you're in a city, you can't walk outside the outskirts of the city every time you need to go to the bathroom and go to like a midden pile outside, you know, where right. nobody is. I mean, we'll come back to it. To a certain extent, you can, but that's only going to scale for so long, right? Like residents of New York City cannot go to New Jersey to poop. <laughs> 
it's just you, you can't leave. If you have to leave Manhattan to poop, then, I mean, why are you, you can't really live in Manhattan. Yeah. And even then, that's not a good idea, especially when you've got lots of people crowded around. Open defecation, even if it's in an, a place separated from you, if it's off in a midden pile or something like that, that can lead to negative health outcomes. And we'll talk about that in a bit. Um, but so, yeah, so you don't want all that stuff hanging around. And it's not just because we don't aesthetically like the idea of feces piling up in the streets and alleys around our homes because it's gross. It can actually be dangerous uh, to be exposed to untreated human waste. Like untreated sewage getting into water sources is especially dangerous. This can spread waterborne diseases like diarrhea, which, you know, is one of the biggest killers of children around the world mm -hmm. in terms of infectious disease. And then like uh, cholera. I mean, cholera has been just one of the most awful diseases in human history, and it still kills tens of thousands of people every single year. I mean, even today. And this generally is it's the fecal oral route of disease transmission is kind of gross to talk about, but it's when sewage contaminates sources that end up going into people's mouths, like drinking water mm -hmm. or like soil that, you know, that ends up in food. Um, and so for this reason, like, you know, I was reading this the uh, thing by the United Nations about the sort of their toilet initiatives, trying to get toilets and clean sewage. Uh, sewage disposal systems to people around the world. And, and they say bluntly, toilets save lives. We should think about that because obviously the toilet is a nice thing to have. It's a good convenience that makes life more aesthetically pleasing, but it's also like a life or death question. Right. And, and it is so easy to take it for granted just because it's this – it's this thing that we're we're grateful for it when we have it and when we need it, mm -hmm. but we're also very willing to forget it and, to, and and probably not plan our life around it too much unless we absolutely have to. Yeah, and and one way to definitely know that you shouldn't take it for granted is to think about all the people who are around the world who are deprived of these amenities. Mm -hmm. Like uh, according to the World Health Organization and UNICEF, about sixty percent of the global population either don't have a toilet in their home or they don't have one that's safe removes uh, removes human waste. So they might have one, but it doesn't – maybe it just goes into a place where it re-enters drinking water mm -hmm. areas and stuff. Uh, among the facts they cite also is that like almost 900 million people worldwide still regularly practice open defecation, just – out, you know, they have to go wherever. Like in a latrine field or, or, or something like that. Yeah, it just means somewhere that is not being captured or treated. Mm -hmm. uh, like if you, had a, if you had a properly dug pit latrine, that would not count. But it, so you're going somewhere in the open, like an open pit or something. And then th this was crazy. So the uh, they say globally about 80% of wastewater generated by human civilization flows back into the ecosystem without being treated, without being treated or 80%, reused. 80%, wow. Yeah. Um, I mean, it's just rampant around the world. And th this obviously is going to ha be having lots of negative environmental consequences, but also negative health outcomes for humans. And then another thing that we shouldn't take for granted is like just the idea of, uh, you know, people don't like the idea of flies getting into their their stuff, right? So like mm -hmm. if, if people have an outhouse or a pit latrine, they tend to want, want to keep a lid on it. And one thing that does is it helps keep flies from getting down in there and buzzing around. And of course, that would be an annoyance when people are trying to use these facilities. 
But that's also not just an aesthetic concern. When when human feces are left uncovered, they're a breeding ground for uh, for like the fly uh, Musca sorbens, known as the bizarre fly, which there's some evidence are a disease vector for the bacterium Chlamydia trachomatis, which can cause an infection in the eyes called trachoma, which is a leading cause of blindness around the world. It's, it leads to hundreds of thousands of people being blind worldwide. So again, we have we have real life consequences, actual hygiene public health consequences uh, to lack of uh, efficient uh, toiletry and sewage technology. I can't emphasize this enough. The toilet, and I want to be very clear about this, not just the toilet in your house, but the toilet paired with a waste disposal and sewer infrastructure, that's really important. Uh, Those things together are not just aesthetically nice. They save lives. This is a life and death issue. Yeah, but just to bring it back to a joke, uh, this is exactly why the sign at Ikea in the model apartment says, do not use this toilet. It's not hooked up to anything. The toilet in and of itself will do nothing. Exactly. And we'll revisit this theme throughout these episodes. Uh, but so without a flush toilet, I guess we should sort of consider the history of, of toilet technology and in, in, in consider some broad categories, right? Mm-hmm. So. Uh, without a flush toilet connected to a safe disposal system like a sewer or a, or a well-contained septic tank, what options do you have for disposing of human waste? There are a few main categories and they pretty much all have some major disadvantages. One, of course, as we've discussed, is open defecation. That's just anywhere in the environment. We know now that that's, that's dangerous. That can lead to disease risks. Um, another option is pit latrines. This is like an outhouse. You go in a hole, you mm-hmm. know. And uh, these these are better than open defecation because they can be covered up and they can keep stuff separate and contained. But also, uh, they're outside your home. You lose the convenience and the privacy. Uh, if they're inside your home, there can be problems with smells and exposure to waste. So they, they might be uh, better from a health perspective than just open defecation or defecation into, say, water sources. But they're also – there are problems with them that make people not – prefer them generally. Uh, And then you've got like chamber pots and buckets. Historically, these are very common. These were often emptied by pouring the contents out of windows into city streets, Mm -hmm. which is obviously unsanitary. Uh, Even though it's more convenient, like you do your stuff indoors, the impact is sort of the same as like open defecation on city streets and can lead to unsanitary conditions and disease and all that. Yeah, like immediately right outside your, your, uh, your building. So ideally what you'd want, uh, given the limitations of all these things, is some kind of appliance that allows you to do your thing inside the privacy and comfort of your own home and then removes the waste automatically to somewhere that it can be safely stored or treated that doesn't allow unpleasant sights and smells to bother you and doesn't allow the waste to pollute the surrounding environment or get into drinking water and soil. Obviously, this is a recipe that a that a flush toilet could meet very nicely if it's mm-hmm. paired with the right kind of like sewer system. Uh, but I think maybe we should take a quick break and then come back and discuss some of the solutions that ancient civilizations came up with for for toilets and, and sewer designs. All right, we're back. So we're talking about ancient complex latrine systems. Yeah. 
I was reading about this in a book by Brian Fagan that I've mentioned on the show before, The 70 Great Inventions of the Ancient World. Mm -hmm. And uh, he points to one of the earliest examples we have of of latrine technology being that of a latrine drainage system in um, the Neolithic period. Uh, uh, One example being uh, Scara Bray on the Orkney Islands of Scotland from roughly 3100 to 2500 BCE. Hmm. And the site featured six houses, each with a buried duct that uh, drains uh, from small toilet rooms to a single duct that removed waste from the houses. So it's it's simple, but basically in that you have the the roots of modern uh, sewage technology. Yeah, and uh, so we see things kind of like this in other ancient civilizations. Like, for example, one of the great uh, ancient civilizations in terms of civic design and uh, and technological advancement in the way cities are put together is the Indus River Valley civilization, uh, like uh, including sites like Mohenjo-Daro and Harappa where they had buildings with these sort of toilet holes that rested over an underground brick drainage pipe. And these sewer drains could be washed out with water to carry the waste away to cesspits. Right. This would have been about 2500 BC. Mm-hmm. And another interesting bit about the Mohenjo-Daro uh, site is that there appeared to be channel junctions yeah. in the sewage system so that you could it could easily be cleaned. You could go in there to prevent blockage. Mm-hmm. So uh, it, it would seem to be an, an advancement. Uh, from uh, from earlier designs. Yeah, and uh, another advancement, of course, comes if you have a good source of flowing water. Like the ancient Romans made use of their aqueduct-supplied water to power a sort of flush toilet. I think it's not quite a flush toilet. I guess it depends on how you define it. Uh, but it consisted of, in, in ancient Rome, basically a bench with multiple holes in it. So this would have been a very communal affair. These oh, yes. holes are just like right next to each other. So you'd go and sit next to a whole bunch of people and I guess just sit around talking while you were pooping. And uh, th- these holes in the bench were suspended over a drainage ditch with running water. And the flowing water below the toilet bench would remove the waste and it would also help limit smells. So this is great. Like you don't – you know, it doesn't stink in there because stuff's getting – well, it might stink a little bit. But it's not as bad as it could be because it's all getting washed away immediately by the running water. Yeah, there's running water. There's there's, – there are mosaics and frescoes. There is – there's probably live music at some of these places. Oh, really? Yeah. I I didn't know that. Yeah, that that was a a detail I was reading in – I believe it was Smith's book – pointing out that, yeah, this would have been just kind of a fun place to to hang out and, and have a poop. Yeah. I mean, it does seem like it was a thing that uh, it's, it's hard to, like with modern Western sensibilities about like embarrassment, uh, you know, you know, when you when you have to go to the bathroom, it's just hard to imagine sitting around talking to people while you're all pooping on the same bench. But uh, when in Rome, you know, Poop, poop on the bench. Uh, but of course, this this had some limitations also because it relied on a certain kind of infrastructure, right? It relied on the constant running water supplied by the aqueduct system. And it had to be done at the end of the water supply system or else you would, of course, foul the water sources downstream of you. So this sort of had to, you know, you, you wouldn't want to put this toilet site at like the first place the aqueduct water, supplied water gets to in the city. Right. Now, now, certainly, we're going to talk some more about Roman toilets here uh, because just the Ro- Roman plumbing situation was fabulous. It was yeah. – really, it was a wonderful creation. They were really proud of it too. Oh, yeah. But at the same time, uh, there, there's a problem with thinking too much about ancient toilets. 
toilets in light of our, you know, our modern concepts. Mm -hmm. uh, because, you know, we're standing at the end of a long journey in which in, innate, uh, you know, sensibilities about cleanliness are confused with concepts of purity. Right. And they're augmenting, augmented to varying, but hopefully significant degrees by public health concerns. Right. So like, you know, for a fact that exposure to human feces can actually be a public health risk. But there's also like this weird kind of primal thing where you think of feces as morally bad or yeah, something. Yeah, yeah. And, and that's one of the, the major uh, trends in, uh, in uh, Smith's book about hygiene is that these two things just become uh, interwoven and it's hard to, 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 uh, to take them apart. Yeah. But uh, the ancient understandings of public health were, were very unlike our own. Uh, we've discussed before on Stuff to Blow Your Mind how Roman civil engineer uh, Vitruvius advised against building towns near marshes because of the the fear of the miasma, right? Right, yeah. Which, the, which there's some truth to that and also just like he's stumbling he was, upon truth but at the same time there's no magical uh, fog that's going to come out and give you uh, an illness. Well, he was right for the wrong reason. Right. Right, like so the idea that you might get malaria because there are bad smells and vapors coming off of the marshes is wrong but it might actually be correct that you don't want to be too close to the marshes because the standing water produces disease vectors the mosquitoes right. that are the vector for the malaria. Now, he also advised that latrines should be positioned so that odor is directed away from public spaces. Sounds reasonable. Mm -hmm. uh, but as Brian Fagan um, et al. point out uh, in uh, the, the 70 Great Inventions of the Ancient World, quote, such purely practical measures need not reflect a generalized concern for public health as we understand it. Uh, you know, but for, for all the, the Roman feats of plumbing, it, you know, it all says little about what they necessarily thought about hygiene. Mm -hmm. uh, for instance, Fagan points out that many private toilets in Pompeii were positioned right next to the kitchen. Right. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I mean, it makes me think of that Simpsons episode where they build Ned Flanders a new house and the, the <laughs> toilet is just in the middle of the kitchen because they're like, you ever tried lugging a toilet up a flight of stairs? Yeah. Another fact about how these Roman toilets don't necessarily like completely interlock with common ideas about hygiene. So you wonder what do the ancient Romans use for toilet paper, right? Mm -hmm. Like when, when they were sitting around by the dozens for social pooping. Yeah, were they wipers or were they washers, right? Uh, they were sort of in between. They were, okay. Well, I guess you call them washers because there was a water element. So they apparently wiped themselves with a kind of wetted sponge on a stick, which they – so you'd be sitting there on the toilet and then in front of you there would be a separate stream of fresh water washing in. Mm -hmm. um, and then everybody would sort of dip their sponges at the end of their stick in this water to like wet it and wash it off. And then they'd wipe themselves with that and then dip it in there to <laughs> wash it off again. And everybody like you would, you know, people would share these things, obviously. Oh, I mean, imagine an alternate uh, version of our present world in which instead of using toilet paper or any kind of uh, sprayer or what have you, instead it's single-use disposable sponges on sticks. <laughs> you know, like we're very – we're hygienic about it. Uh, but we're just so extra wasteful about it. I came across, I think, what is a false factoid that I'm, I, I wonder if I should even repeat because I don't want to spread it via the uh, illusory truth effect. But I'll say it anyway. Heck. Okay. Uh, th there, there are people out there saying that the phrase getting the wrong end of the stick comes mm -hmm. from this Roman experience. But I did not find good evidence that that is true. I do not think that is the origin of that phrase in English. Yeah. And really, what, which, what end is the wrong end? It kind of depends on what you're doing, right? Yeah, I mean, if they were like, if it's good enough for your butt, why isn't it good enough for your hand? <laughs> um, all right, well, we're going to come back to the Romans, but but real quick, I want to touch base again on some of these these older settlements. Okay. Um, 
because we don't want to give the false impression that like from a very early point from say uh, again uh, – 3100 BCE onward, people were just all on board with some sort of primitive sewage system because that's not the case. Right. Because there are plenty of other advanced settlements in the ancient world that just didn't seem that concerned with the latrine technology. Catalhoek, mm-hmm. uh, I believe, uh, I'm attempting to pronounce that correctly, would have, this would have been about 7000 BCE in modern Turkey. So they had mud brick houses for thousands of people. And one of the interesting things about this uh, settlement is that uh, most of these buildings were accessible by like sometimes like uh, apertures in the sides of the buildings, but often ceiling holes. Yeah. And they had no proper streets. The rooftops were the streets. Um, so, so, uh, so, so that's fascinating. But, but then they also had uh, – they had cooking hearths. They had ovens. They had storage rooms. Uh, and yet they seemed to have been just content with carrying all of their trash and latrine, latrine waste out to dumping sites, out to middens uh, beyond uh, the limits of their, uh, their, their town. Well, I wonder if the fact that the streets were positioned above the dwelling spaces uh, actually would have discouraged them from dumping all of their waste out on the streets as often happened in other cities because they would quickly and easily run into people's homes. Yeah, could be. Uh, Another big example, uh, classical Athens uh, may do with just uh, open sewers. Uh, Fagan adds that although the water supply was taken care of, the 5th century BC drainage system consisted of a single large duct in the marketplace and everybody else just had to make do. But let's get back to Rome. Okay. So uh, obviously a lot of time, energy, and money went into the sewage system, into the overall plumbing infrastructure. Uh-huh. Uh, we, we've mentioned the aqueducts already, but we haven't mentioned Rome's great central sewer, the Cloaca Maxima. Cloaca Maxima? Yeah. That's like a body part on a Tyrannosaurus Rex, ain't yeah, it? Yeah, but cloaca means sewer. So hey, yeah. yeah. It's the, so it's the, the, the what, maximum sewer, the great sewer. <laughs> um, <laughs> no, I mean, so the, to clarify, the cloaca in the uh, – in the animal world, I think I'm. In, uh, I think it's basically like a single passageway that serves the function of like a rectum and a urethra and a birth canal and all that. It's all sort of in one, right? And so, but but here we're talking about a great central sewer, and uh, accounts vary on when this was built. The, there's a, there's a tradition that says that it was built in the sixth century BCE, but Fagan stresses that it likely came later and may have remained an open sewer till about second century BCE. But uh, but it was a pretty impressive sense, uh, system. For instance, our old friend Pliny the Elder uh-huh. was absolutely bonker balls for it. <laughs> uh, I want to read a quotation here. This is from the uh, the Rackham translation that we've uh, used before on the show. You mean of the natural history? Yes, this is from the natural history. Okay. Quote, but at that time, elderly men still admired the vast dimensions of the rampart, the substructures of the capital, and furthermore, the city sewers, the most noteworthy achievement of all. Seeing that hills were tunneled and Rome, as we mentioned a little earlier, became a hanging city beneath which men traveled in boats during Marcus Agrippa's term as Edile after his consulship. Through the city there flow seven rivers meeting in one channel. These, rushing downwards like mountain torrents, are constrained to sweep away and remove everything in their path, and when they are thrust forward by an additional volume of rainwater, they batter the bottom and sides of the sewer. So, yes, in case anyone missed it there, Pliny is telling us that Marcus Agrippa took a sailing vessel through the sewers. That's how amazing they were. There's essentially a river uh, uh, th- that runs through Rome, and it is the fabulous sewer. 
So this sort of te- uh, toilet technology, you find this throughout the Roman Empire. Uh, and yet, at the same time, they still had to post warnings against public defecation. Oh, yeah. So uh, I, I want to touch on some of these, but I, I'm, I'm going to stress here that apparently in translating uh, these, the word poop is not always sufficient. So I'm going to go ahead. We're going to go ahead and use the stronger S word for excrement. Uh, but we are going to come up with uh, delightful ways to bleep the profanity. This is a show of family values, folks. Right. But but it also it's a show about uh, about history. Yeah. And th- apparently these uh, these bits of often graffiti cannot be properly translated without using some vulgar terminology. Let's get vulgar. All right. So uh, one, this was a graffiti on a wall in Pompeii that says, again, translated, with comfort and good cheer, so long as you don't do it here. (laughs) So it's a warning. Please, please don't poop here. Don't poop here. There are places to poop, but not here. There's a kind of beautiful irony about that being on a house at Pompeii. They want to keep all nice and clean. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Uh, There's another one. This was on a wall of a a Roman amphitheater uh, that – is uh, what is it? Uh, Cassator cave malum. Uh, I think it would be hard seas in in Latin. I think it would be cacator. Cacator cave malum, uh, which means uh, roughly translated as beware the evil eye. <laughs> uh, which is which is a delightful thing. I've actually uh, I actually saw a website where someone had had taken this thing in Latin and they'd uh, they'd framed it above their modern toilet. Uh, in their apartment, which is a nice, uh, a nice, a nice twist. So, uh, Christina Kilgrove actually wrote a, a wonderful article on Forbes about these inscriptions, titled uh, "Scatological Graffiti Was the Ancient Roman Version of Yelp and Twitter." <laughs> and she points out that you know, even with with latrines, pooping was still something you were exposed to a lot. Again, they were very communal. Mm-hmm. These Roman toilets. Now, she points out that these bits of graffiti were generally not found in actual latrine zones. They were found elsewhere in the city. Mm-hmm. And part of that, of course, is warning against uh, inappropriate defecation. Uh, please go use a latrine. Don't do it here. Uh-huh. But then she said there are other uh, such inscriptions that were essentially Yelp reviews, like uh, one that is translated as, We peed in the bed. I confess we have erred, innkeeper. If you ask why, there was no chamber pot. <laughs> <laughs> That's a good excuse. <laughs> Except why in the bed? Why not somewhere else in the room? Well, I mean, yeah. I mean, you could just use the corner. I guess it's like it would be the most destructive thing you could do, right? Right. And uh, since you can't you can't actually leave a Yelp review, you can just say, I peed in this bed. But the reason is because you didn't provide a, um, a latrine uh, for me to use. So, uh, yes, graffiti artists of, of Rome had some fun with, uh, with defecation in general and with the use of latrines. Mm-hmm. Um, whole books have been written on Roman graffiti. It's a, it's a wonderful uh, topic. Oh, yeah. Uh, but still at the same time, we stress that uh, the latrines of ancient Rome, they do represent a major contribution to public health. Uh, you know, even if they didn't have the science down uh, perfectly on everything and even if there were a few rogue shits who didn't appreciate any of it. Okay, I think we need to take one more break and then we will come back to finish up our discussion about toilet history. All 
All right, we're back. Are we ready to get into some medieval uh, toilet technology here, Joe? Yeah, we've talked about some pit latrines. We've talked about some some ancient sewer systems sort of with toilets suspended over them. Uh, I wanted to talk about garderobes. So garderobes are a common solution later in like castle building periods in Europe. And there's a simple principle at work here. Why not let gravity flush for you? Uh, So a garderobe would generally be like a small room with holes that you could sit over suspended up high over a pit or over an exposed area outdoors. So there there could be multiple ways you would do this. But the waste would generally fall down into a pit where it would be stored and then could be removed by workers at some point. Or it would fall into a moat. This was pretty common for castles. Mm -hmm. Or it would just fall down to the ground along the exterior wall of the castle or or manor house. Uh, And because of exposure to like cold winter winds, a 16th century poet named John Harrington, who we will revisit in the next episode, called this, quote, sitting on the draft. So you can imagine (laughs) there's like, you know, there's just a hole that's exposed to outside. And I guess your your stuff falls down along the castle wall and, and you got the winter winds biting at your butt. Yeah, your hole is exposed to the outside and all of this. Yeah, exactly. So, of course, the waste would either end up in a water source, and that's not great, or it would pile up below and have to be removed by workers. And I'm not positive, but I think a garderobe-type structure is the central uh, uh, architectural feature in a story that uh, I loved about a castle I've actually been to in Slovenia. Uh, so there, there's a castle called Prajamski Grad in Slovenia, also known as uh, Prajama Castle. And I've got a picture of it here. It's it, So it's a castle that was built in the 13th century in the mouth of a cave. Ooh, nice. Yeah, and Slovenia just generally has awesome caves and like karst geological features. Uh, but here somebody decided to be super bad and build a castle right on a cliff at the entrance of a cave system. I like the way they think. So – You've got this guy named Erasim Luger or Erasmus of Lug who is a so-called robber baron. He's a bad dude who owns a castle, though I guess most of the people who own castles are bad. Yeah, it's kind of a red flag. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, Oh, and that's uh, something we'll get to again in a minute. Uh, So – uh, he, he's a he's a so-called robber baron, and he and his family, Erasim Luker, uh, they they take over the Prajama Castle by the end of the fifteenth century. And at one point, Luger gets in trouble because he murders a relative of the Holy Roman Emperor Frederick the Third. And the Holy Roman Empire comes to collect, and they end up laying siege to his castle here at the cave mouth. But the siege went on and on because the castle had a secret weapon for siege survival. It had a tunnel leading into the cave system, which had other openings to the countryside. Ah. So it allowed occupants of the castle to secretly sneak out and get supplies while they were under siege. And this, of course, means the siege can go on for a really long time. For all I know, you know, it could go on forever. While the army is waiting outside to starve you out, you're sneaking off to the snack bar. (laughs) So apparently somebody within the castle got sick of this after about a year or so, uh, and the insider decided to betray Luger, the master of the castle. And I guess they must have coordinated a a plan with the army outside, but however they arrived at this plan, what happened is they waited until Luger himself had to go up to the garderobe. It was this little room overhanging the outside wall of the castle, and then they raised a red flag Ah. to let the army outside know, and (laughs) the army blasted the garderobe with a cannon and killed Luger in one shot. Oh, man. And that should have been adapted to a Game of Thrones scene. Maybe it still will be. (laughs) 
That's right. Game of Thrones did have a, a, a death on the toilet scene. They also had the moon door, uh, which was not a toilet, but was it was very much like what we're describing here. Yeah, a hole that opens up onto the uh, the expanse below the the castle or along the castle walls. Now, one more note about uh, medieval toilets. Uh, generally, there were two ways to you do your business in the medieval bedroom. Uh, there was a jerry, which you simply uh, pushed uh, under the bed, so this would be just like a standard chamber pot. Uh-huh. But then there was also the clothes stool, which. It's like a toilet box, uh-huh. uh, and uh, you'll you'll find some examples satin of this. Cushions. Yeah, where it's like satin cushion. It's this <laughs> fancy little box. It's like imagine the fanciest uh, um, you know enclosure for a litter box you can purchase, and it's essentially that for human defecation. You know, I find so you look at a lot of this uh, like medieval royal toilet technology. You know, mm-hmm. the stuff that kings and queens of Europe would poop in, and in, in these times, there's an awful lot of like cloth elements involved. It just seems like a bad idea. Like you don't want, you know, when you see people who have like toilet, uh, like toilet seat covers that are like fuzzy cloth stuff. Uh And I'm always just like, what are you doing? A toilet should be all like hard surfaces that are easy to clean off, you know? Oh, my God. It just seems wrong to like be putting cushions and and fabric and all that are all over your toilet. That just seems like a recipe for disgustingness. Oh, yeah. My, uh, an example of this, my family once rented a home that had a white carpet in the bathroom, oh. like all the way up to the toilet. <laughs> it was ridiculous. <laughs> oh, my God. That's horrible. Like brown shag carpet, fine. But, but, but <laughs> you don't pristine see white carpet is just a terrible idea. I mean, why don't you – if you're going to do that, why not just have like cloth dinner plates and stuff? <laughs> <laughs> Hard, non-porous surfaces, people. That's Yeah. yeah. You got to be able to clean it. All right. So we're going to go ahead and close out this episode right here. Mm-hmm. But we will be back because the next episode, we're going to really get into what you probably think of as the modern toilet. We're going to talk more about the modern flush toilet, where it came from uh, and, and what its its impact has been. In the meantime, if you want to check out more episodes of Invention, uh, head on over to inventionpod.com. That's our website. That's where you'll find all the episodes, links out to social media accounts, you name it. And uh, I should really stress, if you want to support the show, the best thing you can do is make sure you've subscribed. And then if you have the ability to rate and review the show uh, wherever you get it, uh, please do so because that that helps us out, helps the algorithm and helps us continue to bring you week after week uh, new, amazing, mundane and uh, world changing inventions. That's right. So, as always, thanks so much to our excellent audio producer, Tari Harrison. And if you would like to get in touch with us with feedback about this episode or any other, to suggest a topic for the future, or just to say hello, you can email us at contact at inventionpod.com. 